0: There's a human response, I mean being outside and smelling the fresh air and watching the plants grow, there's it makes you feel human and it's a soothing kind of a, a thing and and it's old, you know. People have been growing, veg- I mean taking vegetables to the farmers market for it's not new. I mean this is probably one of the oldest things that people have done, one of the earliest jobs is by growing vegetables outside of the city and then and then showing up to the city several times a week to sell them. And so it It's comforting for us. We don't make a lot of money doing it, but we have the freedom and and we get to make our own decisions and we get to make our own bad decisions. And we live with the consequences and we live with the rewards when we make good decisions. And every day where, you know, we go out for a little longer if we want to make a little more money and there's a, a pretty direct result of our of our work. Welcome
1: to Tangle Taproot, where we explore the unique stories of small-scale farmers in the Midwest. I'm John Cowan.
2: And I'm Kristen. And I'm Angel.
1: And this is the production of Milk and Hummus.
2: Milk and Hummus?
1: Uh, yeah, we make flavorful hummus and ready-to-drink plant-based lattes that focus on locally sourced ingredients, sustainable packaging, and the humble chickpea. In this episode, we will take a trip out to Bourbon, Missouri to meet our friends Scott and Sarah Harkness of Dang Good Produce. They operate a mixed vegetable farm that's about 90 miles southwest of St. Louis. Those are the snack peppers? or These
0: are the snacking peppers. I tried some yesterday and they just, the flavor seems like it's, it, help yourself, the flavor seems like it's. That was actually a pretty good
3: pepper. (laughs) That's great. He was about to say they aren't as good right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, man. That was like juicy yellow one. So I've been waiting for this moment for some time. Have to say I'm very excited to share this interview, not only because we have worked with Scott and Sarah many times sourcing ingredients for our seasonal offerings, but because of their unique story. Fostering a love for vegetable farming in Northern Cali, really fed up with dealing with the challenges of water sourcing, um, even robbed twice home invasions.
4: This is serious.
1: To establishing a rural homestead, growing organic vegetables a family on their own terms.
4: Peace of mind and making their dreams come true. They haven't been uh, burglarized at their new homestead yet. No. But we're not trying to jinx anything. Knock on wood.
1: I have to say, I really love hearing about my favorite pepper, as well it's that lunchbox pepper honestly all right so these are these small sweet crisp colorful peppers uh you bite into it and i mean to me it reminds me of an apple uh which is really weird uh for uh, for a pepper but uh nonetheless it's really sweet and uh yeah they went from selling these to surfers which i thought was really cool you know surfers ready to go out on the waves for a session and uh now they're having success selling them here at uh, taro grove Market.
4: Yeah, the families and kids and eaters in the metropolis of St. Louis. Quite the contrast.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And uh, they also have a really unique growing philosophy. It sort of entails grow what works, what people enjoy, and then roll with the seasons.
4: Yeah, some admirable words to live by, I would say. People not pushing the limits too much because Scott really talked about how why push it you know if it's not growing not doing well if a certain animal or insect is you know brutalizing a certain crop let it go maybe it's not meant to be or some some sort of like heirloom tomato varietal that's maybe struggling not gonna push it because he's like you know why introduce pesticides why overwork it if we learn that you know something doesn't work then we omit it, and I I think that's a really great theory way to handle things.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Crop failure is real, and uh, I think they were mentioning bell peppers were giving them some trouble initially um, with with spots. And I mean, you, you ideally don't want to have too many ugly spots in uh, bell peppers. turns turns people away, but
4: and it's difficult to get bell peppers to full size like before some sort of issue occurs. A bite out of them of dimple whatever whatnot so but they have a lot of space and they are right butted up against the mark twain national forest which is a really spectacular and illustrious views talk about being in nature and really having to go with the vibrations and rhythms of nature because they are in it it is rural and they are like right up against the bears foxes raccoons snakes etc. Bobcats. Oh, and yes, the wild, wild feline out there that may or may not be large and in charge. It's a lot of things to think about. Yeah. So yeah, I was really struck by the view myself. And yeah, like like you said, John, just finally getting to see where all of these beautiful products are coming from because we've been buying and sourcing from Dang Good Produce for hummus for vegetables to go into our hummus to make it super colorful, super nutritious, super delicious. For these years, I'm like, where is this good stuff coming from? Now I know. Thank goodness I can rest in peace.
1: Yeah, it's uh I guess you call it a, a terroir because of the mm. the climate and everything there and all right. the the landscape Blood is plain, right.
4: Big drop-off cliff.
1: Healthy soils.
4: Healthy soils. Yeah, sediment deposits from those floods.
1: And all the ecosystem and everything at play there. I mean, Bert, like you said, all the animals, critters coming in. Sometimes or many times after those, after their vegetables.
4: Yeah, but they leave some nutritious deposits behind. That's right. I'm not sure if we're allowed to talk about that word, but
1: <laughs> I mean, it's all part of uh, making a good product. Ultimately, right, okay. eh, healthy yeah. and in balance.
4: I thought it was sweet that they, even despite how rural they are, that they've got a lot of little partnerships going on uh, with the, the goat, ram, and the boar, pig farms. They kind of collect and clean out the stalls and get to utilize some of the powerful nutrients coming out of those animals to help reinforce their growing fields and add a nutritive boost and make that soil better.
1: And Not only do they have these inputs, but they also have a local beekeeper that brings on some uh, some hives. I don't know how many how many bee boxes they have, but uh, enough to keep all the vegetables blooming, or I guess flowers blooming, and then vegetables yes. soon to follow.
4: Pollinator pals everywhere! Yes, yet another good good neighbor that they have. For how rural and isolated it is, they really have some special partnerships.
2: And they're super resourceful, too, I think. I was so surprised when I learned about their whole composting efforts and what they do. Um, I'm also in alignment with that, too, the inclusion of the bees and other wildlife as well. Um, But I thought it was super cool to just sort of, like, learn from them. I, again, feel like I'm pretty ignorant with a lot of things, especially when it comes to farming. So seeing how they incorporate, like, the clippings or, like, the land or leaves and things like that, I thought was so, so smart.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a full circle type operation. One thing that really caught my ear was Scott mentioning how he has a profound human response, and that's something that he's basically wise in the game. You know, being outside, the fresh air, the elements, tending to the plants—it's very gratifying. And I was pretty excited. I mean, it really shows, you know, with his excitement, and you'll you'll hear his his vigor and enthusiasm on this it's interview.
4: True. Yeah,
1: but yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty cool philosophy. But their landscape and, and area is beautiful. I mean, there is this really nice creek that's in the back. You know, they the rows upon rows of their their produce, which is definitely non monoculture. Let's let's emphasize that. I mean, we're talking about very diverse,
4: quite like two hundred varieties of heirlooms yeah. within a certain number of vegetables. I mean, maybe just what was it? About 20? Actually 20 50. 20 or 30? Okay, 50 vegetables, yeah, 50. but 200 varieties within those veggies that they focus on in the three growing seasons, spring, summer, fall.
1: And that's not to mention their sugar bushes.
4: Right! Maple syrup season's approaching. Does anybody here <laughs> like to decorate their pancakes with
2: Sugar goodness,
4: angel. Does it okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was a little more heavy on the butter side as a kid growing up, and a little light on the maple. But I'm normal now, <laughs> and I do a lot of maple syrup too.
1: And maple syrup really is something special. It's not delve into the high fructose corn syrup, very viscous products out there. This is very, you know, true or very pure. Yeah.
4: They do the whole process themselves on the farm.
1: Yeah, yeah.
4: It takes time and it tastes delicious.
1: It's a very laborious process, but you get a great result and man, I mean, I've had it. It's it's pretty good, it's pretty good. And then also another wild edible, I would say that they have on their land would be pawpaws.
4: Oh, that's right, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: So for those who are, are unfamiliar with pawpaws, they are like a tropical tasting fruit
4: in the Midwest. Yeah. It's
1: like a cross between like what? Like a banana. Pineapple, pineapple,
4: guava, banana. What would you say, Angel? You're like a fruit expert. <laughs> Describe <laughs> I, the pawpaw. I think
2: you described it well. Um, Yeah.
4: And a potato we like texture, right? Kind of like a, a mashed potato. I mean, it looks like a firm-ish potato. Firmish flesh. And yeah. So they've got a few pawpaw secret locations on their yeah. farm. The triple P. <laughs>
1: I mean, there there are some seeds in there to to work with, but it is custard like, so it's it's great. It's a great dessert. So, Angel, what do what are your thoughts on both Scott and Sarah's migration from from Northern Cali to uh, to St. Louis?
2: I think it was interesting on a lot of different levels. One, I was sort of interested in the migration over to St. Louis, um, being sort of just like influenced by having a child and wanting to be closer to family. I think it goes back to we were talking about a little bit earlier, on um, their relationship to community, and it seems like that's really important to them on multiple levels. Yeah. And I'm sort of interested too in um, the relationship to water and the land, especially the difference between California and the resources available there. The climate's a little bit warmer, land is drier, Versus coming to St. Louis, which is like a little bit more humid. And the the land is a different climate as well, too. And having um, resources that they didn't have in California.
1: Yeah, I mean, we are privileged to be by the confluence and, you know, have all these more uh, access to water high on the water table. Yeah, some of these issues that we hear in the news and the struggles of, of drought. And and changes to uh, the landscape out out west is nonetheless pretty disruptive. So one of the things that they were focused on was water security, yeah, and uh, making sure that they're able to have enough water, whether it be from their creek or irrigation wells, well, from their, you know, that's something that's that we can, uh, you know, maybe you know take for granted a lot of times, you know, we right. turn on a tap,
4: right? We let the water run. <laughs> And we right. have a wasteful, wasteful mindset as far as water use goes, but it was rather striking to hear Scott talk about the limitations and fines and fees sure. yeah. that are very extreme um, affiliated with uh, certain California restrictions with water use for farmers and irrigation. That was something I had no idea about. I'm not sure if he's dramatizing that number, but that is a big fine.
1: Yes, it seems not likely to improve anytime soon, if anything, going the other way. So I guess for such a high-yielding agricultural state, there's definitely some obstacles or puzzles, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, to figure out in your near, in near term. Well, with that, let's, uh, let's dig into this interview with Scott and Sarah of Dang Good
4: Produce.
0: Yeah, have a listen. My name is Scott Harkness from Dang Good Produce. And we're here at Dangood Produce Farm.
3: And also Madeline Harkness, our daughter. She's here as well.
0: Hey, Madeline. Good morning.
3: Thanks for being here.
1: And what about what about you?
3: Oh, I'm Sarah Harkness, Dangood Produce as well. We're just one big happy family. Yeah. Just the three of us on this farm.
0: Three humans. The there's three dogs and four cats.
4: And I'm a cat too.
0: <laughs> and lots of wildlife. And one chicken. And one chicken. One lonely chicken. <laughs>
4: Sad little lonely chicken. How many acres do you have around here?
0: 77 acres. This was an 80-acre parcel. And way back in the day, maybe the 50s or 60s, they they shaved off a three-acre parcel to build a cabin on the other side of Greer Hollow. So it's a little uneven, but we have 77 acres, roughly 50 acres across the street on the farm side of the road and then about 30 acres or so on the residential side so we like to say this side of the road is for is for the house and the other side is for business so this is where we live and have fun and do stuff that's where we go to work over on the other side of the the road by the creek so it's very compartmentalized it is and you have to it's such a big place you can't work. kind of play you can't kind of hodgepodge it and and sort of have little areas that you, you do one thing and another thing you have to have a a big zone that you can really focus your efforts in certain ways because you don't need to mow in the woods, but you do need to mow around the house and, and around greenhouses. How would you describe your main crops? I would I'd say we are a mixed market vegetable farm that has many different crops, many different seasons and a handful of of different markets, although we just focus on selling at the farmer's markets lately. We used to do restaurants and we've dabbled in grocery stores and direct sales, uh, CSA type of stuff, but the farmer's markets work the best for us. And so what we do is we do what we can with the property that we have and with the tools that we have. And so we don't always grow the things that we really want to grow or the things that are the most valuable or the most glorious. We do things that work, things that people are going to enjoy. And we roll with the seasons. We, we don't go outside of the seasons too far because then you find yourself having to force yourself to grow something. And that's when you start leaning on pesticides or you start leaning on unethical practices to growing. Every once in a while, you have to say, well, looks like I lost this row. We try again some other time, and you let it go. You don't. You don't always force it. So we have probably 200 varieties of 50 different vegetables that we do throughout three seasons. It's really diverse. That's quite. That's quite a, yeah. a lineup.
4: Very impressive. And it's all done on. You mentioned three fields when we were walking around, but you're rotating, giving land a break. So operationally wise, like what is like the length of a row, or what do you what are you working with on your most productive
0: part? So like you said, we have one, one large field sectioned off into three sections. Each section is roughly two acres a piece. Uh, each section has about 80 rows that are 200 feet long. And so we spend most of our time just working our way from one end of the row to the next and then starting the next row and working our way back down and working from one row to the next to the next until we get as far far down as we need to. And then we go back and start harvesting the rows that we've done previously. And it's a constant cycle of walking down the row and planting and walking down the row and pulling weeds and walking down the row and trimming and walking down the row and, and picking at the end. So we go up and down each row 10 or 15 times and each row is 200 feet. And then we'll have 50 rows going at a time. So some days we might walk a couple miles just up and down these rows checking and bending over and and going back and forth and then moving on a little further, you know, the next day.
3: And then we have the greenhouse field as well. So that one's kind of always being grown on. But we try to rotate what we're growing every year within that area. So it's not like tomatoes in the same spot every year, you know.
1: And everyone has an, an origin story. I mean, both of you, did you have an agricultural background or a fascination with agriculture growing up? I mean, how did you get to where you are today? And why farming here in Missouri?
3: Well, we sort of, we knew each other and hung out in the same circles in California. And then we really kind of started hanging out, hanging out, you know, when we both were in a farming class together. And so that's what started. He had taken a few farming classes already, but it was a farming class where you're kind of more hands-on, you plant a crop and then see it through fruition, you know? And so that's why I was interested because he knows all the science behind all the stuff. I'm more hands-on, like manual laborer, you know? And so that's how we kind of started hanging out. And then uh we came back here to Missouri because that's where I grew up.
0: Once we had the child, we the kid brought it all that one thing led to another and we had a child in Northern California and then we realized we don't have any family up there and, and the economy is was kind of on the rocks. There was a lot of cultural shift happening in Northern California around that time. And we the the water police were out. They were flying. We were trying to farm. We were try- we were interested in growing. And if you didn't have real specific water permits, you would get in a lot of trouble, like a $10,000 a day violation for mismanaging your water supply. And so we didn't want to be responsible for that. It was real, it's real cutthroat. The agriculture in California is real cutthroat, a lot of permits, a lot of, a lot of rules. And now that we had the kid, we decided we can't deal with all the extra stuff, all the, the high prices and all the extra rules. And and no family on top of that. If we had family, it might have been a different situation. But Sarah has a lot of family around the St. Louis area, and so it was kind of a no-brainer for us to move here. And I liked the. I'm from Indiana. I grew up in Muncie, Indiana, in an area a lot a lot similar to St. Louis. And I worked in St. Louis when I was 21, and so I was familiar with the area too. And we were we decided let's grow, let's start a farm. It mm-hmm.
3: was nice to teach here too. That doesn't hurt. St. Louis. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, did did your, did your, either your parents farm or
1: grandparents or friends farm or like, were you just one day like, you know, I I really like, uh, just working in the soil, growing certain things and, uh, that fascination just, just progressed or, or yeah, I mean, like usually someone is introduced to farming. I I would imagine, I mean, a lot of people we've interviewed, you know, either had someone they, they, they knew was a, a farmer or wanted to have like more independent lifestyle or I don't know. I mean.
4: Yeah, like some people that just kind of wanted to intentionally be more of a homesteader and just kind of do something different, you know, extract themselves from an urban hustle bustle and just kind of experience what it's like to sustain your own life and land. And
0: So for me, what happened, and Sarah, maybe a little bit of this too, was we were working on different farms, doing commercial productions of different things in Northern California. And it turned out that we had... 15 or 20 people out there on the side of a mountain, a half an hour drive from a grocery store. And so we're like, well, this is a great opportunity to have a vegetable garden and grow all these different vegetables. And we eat started people working on the farm. feed so everybody for free. And we, we did it a few times and it, we really liked it. It worked out great. A couple of years down the road, we stopped and we looked at ourselves and we were like, wow, we just made a whole a whole meal out of everything that we grew and there's still plenty left over, like we could make a life of doing just the vegetables.
3: And have no boss. And have no <laughs> boss. And so that that's be- kind of a key
0: component too. <laughs> that became our dream and that that's what we looked forward to when we had the kid and, and then decided to move back to St. Louis.
3: And for me, sort of getting my feet into like outdoor work, I did landscape for about five years out in Colorado. And so then I realized that I really like working with the seasons and outdoors and stuff like that. And so it was just kind of an extension into that.
0: There's a human response. I mean, being outside and smelling the fresh air and watching the plants grow, there's, it makes you feel human and it's a soothing kind of a, a thing. And, and it's old, you know, people have been growing, veg- I mean, taking vegetables to the farmer's market for it's not new. I mean, this is probably one of the oldest things that people have done. One of the earliest jobs is by growing vegetables outside of the city and then and then showing up to the city several times a week to sell them. And so it it's comforting for us. We don't make a lot of money doing it, but we have the freedom and and we get to make our own decisions and we get to make our own bad decisions and we live with the consequences and we live with the rewards when we make good decisions. And every day we're you know, we go out for a little longer if we want to make a little more money and there's a, a pretty direct result of our, of our work. So
1: really freedom and also satisfaction and appreciation for what you grew in terms of like a food, like a, a an experience, I guess, out of it.
4: And just time outside sounds like a very sort of gratifying yeah, soul food, almost grounding yeah, yeah. experience, which yeah. I think most, most of us and probably people listening, like, no, if you live in a city, take time, go out for a hike or a walk, right? Mm-hmm. Drive yeah. out to a yeah. park. Even if it's a city park, you can usually yeah, feel yeah. a little better for sure once you get near trees. Yeah. It's so, even for
3: us, like selling at Tower Grove, farmers' market, you know, like being in the park is yeah. a, good, a key component because she loves playing with all of her friends and stuff in the park. And
0: there's not as many snakes at Tower Grove.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: right. We're bears.
1: No, no bears,
0: we hope.
4: No bears. <laughs> a
0: lot of people can
1: understand California has a rich agricultural scene, you know, they can grow all sorts of different produce. Pretty much year round, I would I would think, and then, but traditionally the Missouri region, especially along the the confluence, I mean, such great soil is, is is found here. I mean, it's been a a hub in itself. Family brought you here, but then you're basically transferring over your your skill sets into like this this land that you now acquire. What drew you to Bourbon? Is it a Bourbon County or Bourbon? Is that this it's the city? town? Town, yeah. yeah. So. So, what specifically drew you to this 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 uh, this land here?
3: Just happened to be the right criteria that we were looking for. We're looking for an already livable house, and a, you know, nice flat area, and it has the creek running through it. And so, everything just worked. We looked at a bunch of other properties before we found this one, and this was the one.
4: Persistence pays off. Yeah, we found the right yeah. thing.
0: We wanted like a really cool log cabin on a perfect, pristine, flat property with the the perfect creek running through, but with no road, but this, three ain't bad. this property is <laughs> is it's got most of the the points we were looking for with the house, and and there's a road that runs straight through the middle of the property. But you know what? That provides for great access. There's power lines that run through the property, but you know what? It's easy to easy access to get on the grid. So you really don't know until you, you get there and you show up what you're looking for and, and the positives in mind. Is, and I'm glad we didn't spend a ton of money on some other place that had better features that we may not have even liked or that may, may not have worked for us. Turns out this place just happens to work. Oh, whew, thank goodness it, <laughs> it worked because spent a lot of money, you know, came a lot of way, a long way. You did come a long way. I mean, it, and so that trip
1: from, or, you know, that that decision From going from
0: California to here, what did that sort of look like? We wanted to grow. We owned, at the the point that we left, we owned two houses and 40 acres in in Northern California. And we were doing things that were kind of in the gray area of legalities and and growing. And I mean, everything's kind of in, in the gray area in California. And so we didn't want any doubt about what we were doing. I didn't want anybody accusing us of stealing water or, or stealing a protected variety or a protected species, or, or, or I didn't want the Department of Conservation to have a problem with something we were doing because they're, they're real cutthroat in California. So we looked, and with the prices being a little higher, we could trade in one of our houses in the shadiest part of town. We had a house in the ghetto that was paid off in Eureka, California, got robbed twice. I mean, like, robbed you know they took the tvs and you know went through all the drawers and everything it's terrible mm. and we traded that house for this this property so it was a no-brainer to to move to 77 acres with a nicer house and sell the house in the ghetto
4: how many times have you been robbed here <laughs> zero <laughs> <laughs> not revealing yes. the location
3: yeah <laughs> right <laughs> no but the second time we got broken into she was a baby and so like there was glass from the window and everything in her little playset. set and so we're like, nope, that's it. We're done. We're out of here. And that was kind of the the pushing factor, like because we were already thinking
4: about it, but sure. that was pleasure. like, yeah, the scales have been tipped. Yeah, yeah you're pursuing westwards. Yep, yeah. <laughs> on the pilgrimage west.
1: And you were in a basically an RV. You, tra- you travel from California. It made various stops and locations in this pursuit of a Missouri location. Was it ultimately yeah. always
0: on your mind, Missouri, since yeah. you have family here? Yeah, basically. And okay.
3: yeah, it's so cheap. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at a map, it's green and lush, you know, in Missouri. So
0: we put all the houses that two houses in the property on the market, got the camper and left because you don't want to be in the houses when they're trying to sell them. And so we just effectively went homeless or nomadic for a couple months and went down to Las Vegas and saw some family, went to Texas and saw some friends, went to Georgia, saw some family, went up to Oregon at one point. We dropped, drive the camper to we stopped in St. Charles, stayed in St. Charles for a couple of weeks while we're coming out, looking within a two hour radius of St. Louis. That was one of the criteria was we had to be within a two hour drive of St. Louis, you know, downtown St. Louis. We hadn't decided to do Tower Grove Farmer's Market or we hadn't decided exactly on the markets yet. We knew we needed to be near a metropolitan center to make it worthwhile. And we didn't want to be in Illinois for whatever reason now, I look at it now, and I probably wouldn't mind being in Illinois. There's some really good growing areas over there. And did start
1: out with a desire to grow these specialty crops or, or plant starts? Or, or what was your, let's say, your, your original business model uh, idea?
3: We kind of always wanted to do the mixed vegetables and ideally sling them at a farmer's market. Because there were big farmers' markets up in California that we loved going to regularly, but there it would have been such a struggle to try to compete with everybody. Because, like you said, everybody is doing the same thing, and you know, and so I mean, I think it even takes like years to get into some of the markets out there. You know, I can imagine more cutthroat on everything. Yeah,
4: it sounds like yeah.
0: And then the the plant sale. So we sell plants in April and May. We have trays with three inch pots and. We sell six packs of all kinds of, we, we try to stick to vegetables and produce. There's such a world of, of horticulture and flowers. And I mean, we could easily get sidetracked and, and do a bunch of stuff. So we stick to just produce and we do varieties that we grow ourselves that we know will do good in the region. In fact, varieties that are better than most home gardeners can get because we've tried several of the types. I have five or six seed vendors that I go through that I'm always hunting down the best the best flavor, the best growing, the the most disease and pest resistant, the most hardy of all these varieties. And I'm using all those factors to come up with these really awesome uh, varieties for the home gardeners to take home into St. Louis. And we get a lot of feedback from, you know, all summer long, we hear about all the gardens and how all the peppers are doing and all these tomatoes. And I mean, I'm really jealous sometimes because there's they have some really good success. I don't always have good success with with everything, so hearing everybody else have success. And that, that was just an organic shift because we had all the plants anyway. I'm making all these plants no matter what because that's part of the, the speed of the turnover of the organic system that we use is you don't want to leave plants out in the garden too long. I mean, you want to do anything you can to keep them covered in the greenhouse, keep them under a row cover, keep them just away from the place they're going to sit for two months until they finally produce because everything finds them. I mean, and it's just you're it's a ticking time bomb. And once you put a more established plant out, it's going to have a little bit of a head start on being a little hardier and a little more resistant and it's it's going to be established oh, yeah. a little bit better. Sure. And so that's how the plant sale we and we started having really good success with the plant sale as a side job because we didn't have too much produce in April and May and and we're standing there we needed to sell something. We're like, "Oh, well, let's sell a bunch of tomato plants and rubber plants. We brought a ton and they sold really well. Turns out there's a ton of gardeners in St. Louis. Everybody's looking for different varieties, unique varieties. Some folks are looking for the same variety. Their grandpa was growing 40 years ago. And, and so we, we get to hear it all. And and it's a great bunch of excitement to be involved in and and the, the craziness of the spring, the spring planting season.
4: Yeah. Well, I think, and people take comfort kind of knowing that you've already done the work and proven what, Gross, you know, because these are plants that you like said are going to be planted yourselves. So I think as a as a buyer myself with some dang good produce, that it's it's nice knowing that like it's it's like a variety that we can kind of count on, you know, and always taste great too. I think it's funny that you mentioned kind of some jealousy with St. Louis Gardens and some of their yields and stuff, but. Tell us a little bit more about what you're battling besides being in a floodplain. You've got very tall fences to prevent deer. I wouldn't say it prevents it, but it <laughs> deters to, it. To, it to, spur- yeah. <laughs> to uh deter. deter. Like, what, what else are you dealing with out here? Well, I
1: mean, like, wildlife. Wildlife. But you also yeah. mentioned like you've had two 200-year floods already in 10 years or so? Yeah. Okay.
0: We've had two very large floods down here on the floodplain, and luckily it didn't do any damage. It drained right out. It was just mostly impassable. It turns out pepper plants will survive completely underwater for about a day, but they don't like it, and they're not very healthy afterwards. Uh, we have the the whole area down there is fenced in because of the wildlife. So the weather, everybody gets a piece of the weather. You know that's nothing unique, but we're right on the edge of Mark Twain National Forest. We border about fifty thousand acres of wild timber hunting land up in the hills there. And so all the wildlife consistently comes down. It's a steady stream of possums and raccoons and groundhogs. We saw beaver the other day. There's there's deer. There's a really healthy, healthy supply of deer down in here in the valley. We're just getting into deer season now, so all the hunters are coming. And I mean, I've been fattening up this deer. They've been eating kale. They've been eating beet tops, beet greens. There, they're eating radish greens right now. We walked up on a, a white-tailed deer a, a couple of days ago, and we got within 30 feet of this deer, and she she saw us. She was watching. She took a few bites. Was just eating off the ground, looking at us, not too worried. And so they don't have the fear of humans out here. They They don't smell us and just run away. We have to act all crazy, run around with sticks and, you know, try try to run them off and constantly reclaim our, our
1: farm. And you said there's also a black bear and you said bobcats?
3: Yep. There's wildcats and, yep. And the other day, actually, we were driving into town and there was a bald eagle in the road trying to pick up some carry on. And then, but we drove up and kind of scared him off. And then on the way home from that trip, there was a fox dragging the possum off of the the same possum that that bald eagle was trying to get earlier. It was pretty cool.
4: What a life cycle, right? You're seeing it all.
1: (laughs) But I mean, at the end of the day, that's indicative, indicates like you have a really healthy, natural surrounding
0: environment,
4: vital ecosystem, really just very natural it's yeah, yeah
0: good it's sign it's a good sign this is we live in a thriving ecosystem it's healthy it's vibrant like we said in the summertime the woods turns into nearly impenetrable jungle and you don't want to be in there because you're you're outnumbered by all the all the critters and the snakes and the you know all the uh, everything that's in there so humans are kind of at the bottom of the totem pole around here which makes it difficult for us But it's also rewarding because we don't have neighbors that are also growing vegetables that we are worried about pesticide drift. We don't, this isn't an old, you know, there's no oil tanks in the ground. There's no old septic tanks. There's not a ton of traffic. We get to kind of do our thing alone as far as humans are. So that's one of the positives, I guess. And then I guess you'd also not have to worry about remediating just the soil
1: once you found this property. Is that in terms of, you know, there wasn't anything around here to worry about too much prior? Yeah. Okay.
3: Like I was saying earlier, there was one guy that lived up the road that used to grow hay on our field. But before that, he had to run cattle on it and get it fertilized and bring, you know, sort of set up some dirt on it. And then, yeah, that's why we have our field now, though.
4: So. Good neighbors. Yeah. They go a long way. Yeah.
0: And right when we moved in, we had had the soil tested. We tested about 20 different sites. And the gist we got from all the soil tests was every little area is a little bit different and the whole field, it's the higher spot closer to the road is a little more clay. The down by the creek is a little more gravelly. There there was no nitrogen to be found on the on the whole parcel, but there's a good amount of phosphorus and potassium, healthy amounts. So was in pretty good shape to begin with. And I would assume it's st- we don't test the soil regularly. It doesn't really make sense because it, I could test a little area. I'm never going to be able to add the nutrients that that it needs. I mean, we dust a little tiny bit of lime here and there, and the goat manure. And if if it doesn't grow with that, then we don't grow it. Sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, the goat manure that's that's pretty close by, correct?
3: Yeah, right up the road. There's some goat farmers, and so yep, we go and clean out their their stalls for them, basically.
0: It comes from Brazzle Creek Boar Farm, just up Brazel Creek. If you follow the creek, mile and a half. There you are.
4: As um, for your compost recipe or concoction, is it just, you know, sp- spent vegetables, vegetables that aren't going to make it to the market or that you can eat or so, sort of that and goat?
0: So the goat manure we use outside, out in, out in the main fields mostly. So in the greenhouse area, we use, a, it's a vegan compost. It's my homemade compost. And I don't use vegetables I don't I don't use scraps from the farm I don't use anything where I could introduce a, an established disease I don't want to be using plant scraps or or uh, old plant material it's all fresh I rake leaves out of the woods leaf litter and duff and I mix that with the grass clippings that we get from around the fence lines. And, and hey, I'll, I'll go mow a, a spot out in the field and rake it up with the tractor to get my greens for the compost. And then that's what we make, the, the greenhouse compost. And that's the compost we use for the plant sale because we don't want to have any animal manure or animal products. And in, in the soil it attracts bugs. It can stink. You know, you just don't want to be bringing home a bunch of manure in your, into your house, into your garden and it can attract other animals. If if you have too much different manure, chicken manure in your in your garden, you could get a bear or you could end up with raccoons digging holes in your garden. Yes, and St. Louis has its unique they don't deal with the same wildlife we deal with here. They they have brazen squirrels. They have a very healthy bunny community. You know, the raccoons are these are these fat trash-eating taco bell pandas. So it's it's a different Type of wildlife and 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 insects. We don't have any other vegetable gardens within you know a half a mile from here, so we're not sharing the same insects and the same diseases as as they're sharing in, in the backyards in St. Louis from one backyard to another. We have a few different challenges out here than than the city folks do growing the garden in the city. In terms of uh,
1: insects, like you mentioned, you do have some really gifted pollinators that are that are brought in from a local beekeeper. Is that is that correct?
3: Yeah, there is a beekeeper that keeps hives on our property. And he actually the first year we moved in here, he has a cabin up the road from us. And so the first year we moved in, he approached us like, Hey, can I keep some bees on your property? And we were like, Yes, please, you know? And so Because that was actually one thing that I was going to look into once we moved out here is keeping bees. But now we don't have to. He does everything for us and brings us bottled honey and everything. And it's good honey. He doesn't like pasteurize it or anything like that. just filters out bug parts, basically, you know. Wonderful. And then, yeah, depending on what we're growing is how the honey is. Like if we grow a cover crop of buckwheat, then we'll have buckwheat honey, which is really tasty and kind of like grainy tasting. You know, you can taste the grain in there and then our mixed vegetables. And so it's more of like the wildflower honey and... Um, we had darker honey this year that he said the bees must have gone up into the woods for. but And so, yeah, it's neat hearing the different types of honey and stuff from him. And and he's actually, that's that was his job. He would go around the country and talk to people about keeping bees. And
4: Another dream job, sounds like. Yeah, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that started pretty much soon after you established your, your, your farm here?
4: Yep. We moved in
3: in 2015. And I think even within that first year, once he saw we were going to be gardening, he approached us. Yeah, because we got it in May of 2015, so we kind of went right to town, you know.
0: We just mow near the beehives, and and I've been mowing a little closer and a little closer and getting braver and braver. So last year, and I try to mow when it's cold out, below 50 degrees, the bees don't fly. So last year, it I was trying to mow early in the morning, but as it had it, it turned out it was about 11 o'clock. So it was starting to heat up for the day, and I'd made a pass right by one of the beehives, like really close. Turned around and was mowing back, and I saw above the beehive was a tornado. It was probably ten feet high. It was a bee tornado over the beehives, and I didn't think about it, and I drove right past it, and that's when I got stung in my ears and my head. And I put the tractor in fourth gear, in transport gear, and so I was mowing in transport gear all the way back to the house. And I came, I parked in the front yard, and came running in screaming, and she's picking bee stingers out of my ears and.
3: I never seen that tractor drive so fast. I didn't know it could go that fast. Wow, that sounds terrifying,
0: right? <laughs> at least, at least you know you're not allergic. Yeah, yeah. We looked it up. After you get about ten stings, you need to start looking for, watching out for anaphylaxis. Sure. sure.
4: <laughs> so, in addition to the large variety of vegetables that you grow through the seasons, I've had the opportunity to have some of your maple syrup. So that's one other little secret here. That's at my blanket. favorite. Can you tell us a little bit more about that venture and how how it gets done? We've got three different sugar bushes, which is
3: a bunch of like 20-ish trees in each little bush that uh that we tap every year and some of them, you know, we could put more than one tap on. So that's really nice when we can get more than one on one. And so we just drive the quad up and check the sap every day. It's awesome. And then we have a big barrel that we burn everything on. And so yeah, we're just out there like burning a fire all day. It's pretty awesome, you know.
0: <laughs> Sounds warm. So we evaporate all of the syrup. We have two large barrel evaporators with hotel pans. Big, wide uh, hotel pans because you need a a big surface area to evaporate. You don't want deep, you want wide. And so we set those side by side and we feed wood into those babies. And I mean, it's like feeding a fire-breathing dragon. You're just pumping wood, pumping wood, pumping wood. Getting it really hot. It gets so hot, there's flames that start coming out of the six-foot flue way up high. I mean, like a jet engine or something and so we get it that hot and that's how we boil the maple syrup but we go through maybe 10 ranks of wood a year to make about 10 gallons that's our goal every year is 10 gallons of syrup
3: and that usually on burn days we start you know crack of dawn and we're going into like midnight or so that night just burning that fire all day long
0: Adding sap and burning the fire and adding sap i mean we turn into zombies by the end of the day
4: The labor of love, yeah. I mean, but a delicious, sweet product. Well, like I said, it's one of my basket. favorite jobs.
0: One of one of the the
1: first farmers market was that is Tower Grove that you did locally here.
0: Yep. Well, did we do bourbon? No. The one of the first ones we did was Tower Grove, and it's so funny because they they have you fill out an application at the beginning of the season, and they're like, "Tell us, you know, what kind of produce you're going to have during what month and and what season to give us kind of an idea of what you're going to be bringing in? Oh, we had all this glorious, oh, broccoli, you know, all through the season, cauliflower. We're going to make all these nice melons and all those beautiful heirloom tomatoes. The first season comes around and everything failed. I mean, we had radishes, we had turnips, we had green beans. We start kind of getting a feeling of what's going to be realistic. The cherry tomatoes started working out and, and man, we started really selling cherry tomatoes. We really started selling green beans. Once we finally got the broccoli and the cauliflower, that wasn't as good of a seller as some of the 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 stuff that we didn't think would would be good sellers and the stuff that we didn't want to focus on. And so we kind of let it let the winds blow us in the different directions away from some of the most glory. The cucumbers, all we wanted to just do huge cucumbers and huge zucchinis, you know, all the glory stuff, corn and all that. But you got to stick to the the stuff that works and the stuff that sells and and keep it realistic so I look back at that very first plan the garden planner on the application that we filled out of of the all the items I thought we were going to have through all the different seasons and oh I was really optimistic
3: (laughs) (laughs) and we kind of try to do something new every year like he was saying out there that we did berries and stuff for a year maybe we even did berries for like two years but it just wasn't, didn't work out in the big scheme of things, you know? And we've tried selling, like you said before, to restaurants and stuff like that, but it just takes us off-farm too much to where we have our markets on Saturdays and Sundays, and that's just what we do at this point, you know?
4: I'm very sad that he got rid of all of the berries, because they were so good. <laughs>
0: yeah. are so sad. Yeah. What was your favorite berry?
3: Salmon berries. Salmon berries, for sure. That's my favorite, too. They're
1: absolutely <laughs> delicious.
0: What's
3: that? It's like a golden raspberry. Yeah basically really. yeah they're, they're like salmon like colored yeah so yeah like really sweet, kind of it's hard to explain but yeah it's really good but yeah transporting berries to the market from here you end up more with crushed yeah. berries than you do good berries <laughs> so sad. and all of the other animals love them as well so berry mash yeah
0: one day we were out there picking blackberries sarah went out to the blackberry vine before me and we had bunch of bird net, just covering it because we, we were having problems with all the wildlife. So we covered it with bird net, buttoned it down real tight. She gets out there and there's a raccoon under the bird net and the raccoon wasn't like totally leaving. And so she, she flushes the raccoon away and it runs up a tree right next to us. And she's like, God, there's a raccoon. And it's in the middle of the daytime. She's like, there's a raccoon out here. And it like won't leave. And so I go, I start throwing rocks at it. And I eventually hit it with a rock, knock it off the tree, and it runs away. And I hope it learned its lesson. (laughs) Don't mess around with my berry patch. Now the deer, they... They keep coming around. He's
3: really trying to humble brag about his throwing skills. Seriously. Like ah. I threw one rock and hit him right away. Yeah. <laughs> and didn't we used to sell like spices or something? Yeah, we tried spices the first year with all of yeah, our extra that peppers did not work and out that way. Yeah. Yeah. Like like we were saying, we try, you know, something new every year and like see dried, what works. Dried peppers. peppers. Yep. Know. We had a dehy- a couple of nice sized dehydrators and we would dehydrate all of our extra like peppers and garlic and stuff like that. And then grind it up with a little, you know, sure coffee time. grinder, yeah, basically. Yeah, I really ended up working. Today. Yeah, didn't really work that well. It Was
0: a lot of labor. Yeah, a lot of labor
3: and kind of a lot of a produce that.
0: <laughs> so,
1: Sanberries is your favorite. What would be your favorite? I guess in this span that you've that have seen in terms of your favorite crop to grow, if you have one, or your, your top, or yeah. your top top couple, maybe.
3: <laughs> My favorite herb is dill by far. And, yeah, I get really seasonal. You know what I mean? Like, every season something is like, oh, this is my favorite right now. And then the next season, it, I'm like, no, wait, this is my favorite, you know? Like, the peas are one of my favorite, and peppers are definitely one of our favorites.
4: Remember, um, um, the lunchbox peppers are my favorite, more specifically the red ones. They're
3: absolutely delicious. Yeah. You see, that yep. They're, they get everything. Yeah. Really the salmon are. berries were my oh, yeah. favorite out of berries. Yeah. And then... This year I really got into the radishes, which we grow radishes every year and I like them, but this year I was like, oh yes,
0: you know. <laughs> In late summer, I usually have a belly full of lunchbox peppers and cherry tomatoes. I usually eat so many cherry tomatoes that I feel sick and I think I can never eat a cherry tomato again mm-hmm. until the next day. <laughs> and I'm picking again, and there I go, just eating and eating and eating them.
4: Turnips and mac and cheese really good. Oh, mm-hmm.
0: I do have some turnips
1: right now, and I was like, what am I gonna do with them? Yeah. yeah.
3: Chop them up and throw them in with your mac.
1: Okay.
4: Sweet. Yeah, kill it. Yeah. <laughs> and cheese, right, is a fun companion for <laughs> any vegetable practice.
1: No, but look, the snack pepper, the white peppers, you know, when did you get going on those? Because, yeah, well, yeah, were those uh, an opener or something that was in the future that you started getting into those?
0: We did bell peppers at the very beginning. That was the plan was green, red, yellow, orange, bell peppers. Bell peppers are a little tricky to grow. They have a lot of bad spots. They get really big. There's a lot of failure in there. And so then we're like, well, we got to grow smaller peppers. We have more success with smaller fruit. The lunchbox peppers, when we were living in California, the lunchbox peppers were really popular. The surfer bros all the surfer bros would show up, you know, they'd be getting ready to go for their sessions out you know, talking about the waves and hitting, hitting the surf and the beach. And they'd be just mowing down on lunchbox, like snacking lunchbox peppers. And so we tried them and we enjoyed them. But by the time we got to Missouri, I knew that was, that's obviously going to be a a popular item. And then it sunk in after the first season that we should be doing lunchbox peppers.
1: I mean, they are incredibly flavorful and very vibrant, you know, visually. Fun
3: to look at, yeah. And I
1: don't think I've
0: cooked with them. I just eat them.
3: Yeah, that's what we do too for the most part. We save the big peppers for cooking.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So for the big peppers, we have a lot of luck with sweet Italian, the long, skinny, pointed sweet peppers. In my opinion, they taste better than the bell pepper. Anything you do with a bell pepper, you can do with an Italian pepper. And they just have a lot more success out in the garden. For us, so we we lean heavily into the multiple sizes of sweet Italian peppers. We do the lunchbox peppers, and then we do t- about twelve different spicy peppers. So I think our our coup de gras or our our favorite, you know, dang good uh, vegetable, our best dang good vegetable is probably the pepper. All the different peppers
4: types of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say I feel like there's a bit of an infamous title of crowning glory from various cooks and chefs and eaters we know that always talk about your peppers and how vital they are and the flavor and how the spice kick on some of your peppers. Dang good, like out, out spices, other pepper growers, yeah. not trying to yeah. start a no. fight here. <laughs> Calm down, people. But uh, this is the word on the street, and I would agree that there's a lot of bang for your buck or bang for your bite in they your peppers. Are
0: dangerous goods, so be careful.
1: <laughs> so then, what do you see? Any, if anything, continuing to evolve. I mean, it's been ten years. You've learned a lot. Is there anything that you're trying to can either continue to expand on or just you know you found your system and uh it's just a continuation right now
0: we're working right now on work-life balance all right the last seven or eight years overdoing it building the farm coming up with ideas doing the work 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 blowing out my back my back i had back severe back pain for about three years and it was all because we were overdoing it to get established to try to live live out our dreams. And then a couple of years ago, we started realizing we were there. You know, here we are. Like, what are we going to do? Just keep burning out? We're going to work till we burn out every day. And so we started focusing on family more. And now we go to soccer games all the time. And
1: yeah, work Life Balance is, is a
0: struggle for... Many people. Right.
3: Especially all of us at the market. You know, I know a bunch of the
0: vendors. There's always something you could be doing. This your
3: life reminded us Always,
0: There's always something. And some days you just have to say, forget about it. Yeah. You know, and just let it go. And you're standing in the fire. I mean, all summer long, we're just standing in the fire. And, you know, we're putting out fires. And it's just, everything's burning all around us. And some days you just kind of have to step back and say, I'm I'm going to the soccer game.
4: How do you occupy uh, your off-season, your winters? Like, what do you... Do do you preserve a lot of your produce to enjoy? We don't as much. Like the first year, you know, like we were saying we did the spices and so we dehydrated
3: a bunch of stuff and or we would can a bunch of stuff. And I felt like we did that even before I got in California. We worked on more canning and stuff like that, but we don't as much anymore. We like to chop up and just straight up freeze the peppers. Like all you have to do is chop them up, throw them in the freezer. You're good to go. You know, you don't have to like blanch even or anything like that. So like simple stuff like that we'll do as far as preserving. But we do a ton of firewood, like he was saying, we need it for the maple syrup. And that's mainly how we heat our house. And so and then we like rake leaves up in the woods while we can get up there while it's not middle of summer. You know, like he was saying about that as well. And we do the maple syrup. That's a wintertime thing. And we start plants down in the basement January 2nd. So get the ball rolling even, you know, beginning of the year.
4: And then there's all the, you know, typical holiday stuff that happens anyway. Well it sounds tasty. Like I I just like have kind of like fantasy dreamland of like, I bet they have really awesome freezers because of all the goods, you know, <laughs> that you have like left over. I feel like they would be like kind of a dreamland to be like, ooh, what could I find in Dang Goods Freezer? <laughs> like in the spice cabinet. Like maybe they dry some goods for themselves. <laughs> just, let me look around. Yeah. Like I said, we don't as much anymore, but
0: we have fresh vegetables nine months out of the year. So that's where, that's where we keep things. And I keep telling her, I'm like, we just got to keep eating what we have that's fresh, that's new, that's in season. And I mean, we still have a fridge full of peppers and a fridge full of turnips and radishes and daikons and mini daikons and watermelon radishes. And I mean, we, we're we going to have fresh vegetables until January or February. We have a big box of garlic in the basement. We have a box of potatoes down there. where We still have two types of onions and shallots to get us through the winter. And so... Sounds helpful. There's a yeah. good amount of residuals that that we'll be picking in. Th- so by January we're going to be having rotten old, t- rotten old uh, onions and old, you know, spotty tomato or spotty potatoes and soft turnips. But then we'll be looking towards the fresh stuff in April, and it'll start kind of coming in in April.
4: And seedlings, yeah, you're busy taking care of babies like the latter part of the winter, and mm-hmm. basically
0: coaxing along. Yeah, we don't start, we don't fire up the greenhouse until February 1st, roughly early in February. And for a while, it's easier and it's cheaper to add light to a warm space in the basement than it is to try to heat a big greenhouse. It's so incredibly cold that the amount of energy to heat that whole greenhouse, it's just too much. It's a lot easier to just throw up a couple lights in the basement and pay for the electricity, get the stuff started. It's always 60 degrees, 70 degrees down there. And then a day in February comes along where it's time to shuffle everything out. And we send everything out into the greenhouse, start running the, the fireplace out there, which goes through probably five ranks of wood within about a month and a half. I mean, it burns a lot of wood really fast with backup space heaters in case the the wood fire goes out. All the fans on the exhaust, is they're all on thermostats. If it gets too hot, everything will exhaust. There's a dehumidifier in case the... The exhaust fans don't turn on and and it gets too stuffy in there so and it's, it's also crazy to know like how
1: economical indoor lighting has gotten over the years and i mean you know i think like you know large grow lights were, were you know thousands of dollars for the right materials and now you can, i think you can order one on amazon for like 100 bucks and they'll show up like two days later and-
0: yep 200 bucks you can get a 600 watt ballast and a bulb and a, a hood and a timer and the mounting hardware where it would have been six hundred dollars a few years ago Same times
4: modern convenience (laughs)
0: right it is and that's part of our system is we we stick to commonly available goods we we don't try to use anything too specific a lot of the specific agricultural equipment can be really pricey like like restaurant equipment is just ridiculously expensive for no reason. And so we spend a lot of time finding deals on stuff that will do the same thing the expensive fans or the expensive uh, thermostats or controllers will do. We go down to Habitat for Humanity and we sift through their materials to, to build with. Anytime we bought something expensive or, or high value, we've been just disappointed. It just doesn't work as well as it should or breaks or... You don't want to put it to use because it's nice, and you don't want to scratch your nice new piece of equipment. And so we have a lot better time with with using junk. I mean, we just love junk, like our
3: walk-in fridge right there behind you. That is cooled with an air conditioner. There's like a conversion kit that you buy. And
1: well, I mean, other th- all right, where can people find it? Your your produce. Let's let's go there.
3: Tower Grove. That's the main one. Tower Grove. And forgot. then, yep, that's every Saturday, May through October. Sometimes we'll get into November, but. And then the boulevard on sundays which is the same people that do tower grow farmers market and that's done by the galleria and that one is a little shorter of a season i believe like midway through may and like i think they're still going but we're just done with the markets are ready for the year
1: will people be able to find your your syrup uh before the holidays or is that a post holiday product
3: it'll be a post holiday okay yep because yeah we usually start that in like january february ish and so yeah we try to bring it to market beginning of the market you know Sometimes we try to save it for the end of the market, especially if we're not going to have much produce to sell, kind of bump that up a little, you know.
0: And we've stopped trying to pretty up our booth and we've stopped adding flair and banners and decorations and we've decided now we finally have our clientele. We have a lot of people that we sell to. We we like those people. We've got our little community, so we don't need to attract people with you know banners and sales and and all that stuff that we frankly hate like we hate the marketing aspect and we hate pushing on people we don't you know we don't we don't force a sale anything no we really love this like we genuinely love sitting back and you know feeling carrots and feeling all the vegetables and and throwing them on the table so we use mountains of carrots as advertising and mountains of you know cucumbers as advertising instead of a banner and I tell that's what I tell those guys on Saturday morning is let's stack it tall and sell it all
3: (laughs) just wait for nature to happen yeah
1: Yeah, i mean once people try you know your product whatever that may be i mean you know that's that's what's that's what's valuable that's what really it's you know all about anyway
4: yeah the pepper hype the pepper hype is real we try to let the vegetables just
3: sell themselves like if you don't want it that's totally fine we're not going to try to convince you of it
4: well, one thing I was just curious personally, like as we were journeying out here, turned out of Bourbon, which is a lot like my hometown, except much larger. Bourbon is larger? Yeah. Oh. And you have more alive downtown than my town, too. Yeah. Like we got a lot of <laughs> vacant storefront.
3: Yeah. It, it was like that even a couple of years ago. They're kind of revamping it, Great. sort of. Yeah.
4: But that's, the that's businesses are new. And and so you're about 20, 30 minutes outside of town. Yes. yes? yes. Okay. So my, my curiosity is, Just being a little bit, you know, away from life, people, other conveniences, we might say, what are some of the the hardships or challenges that you might have endured as you're kind of establishing your home out here in a rural space where there aren't. Conveniences are there? I mean, not necessarily fears, but like obviously you have to be prepared to a certain extent with things that might occur, right? You do have neighbors. Tell us a little bit more about what it's like. You're a little bit more isolated than some. Well, the
0: the dryer but- broke down a couple of years ago, and so we're like, oh, we'll just call a mechanic to come fix the dryer, a utility mechanic, and. We called the only two people in the area that that would do it. One of the guys was out on vacation, and air conditioner. Oh, that was the air conditioner. We had trouble finding the air conditioner repairman, and we called the uh, the dryer repairman, and he was basically like, "No, thank you. We yeah. we're not going <laughs> to come out that far. We're going to come out to repair your dryer." So really? we were. Like, what do we even do now? Well, we'll have to take it to a shop, you know, deliver it to a shop somewhere. But getting supplies out here is is difficult.
3: It didn't get fixed. But luckily, we had good friends that were moving at the same time and they gave us their dryer. So problem solved. Yes. But and I wish she was a little closer to friends, especially being like the only kid, you know, because she's our only one and she's going to be the only one. So I wish she had more kids to play with closer.
4: And another thing is how far we are from the nearest doctor's office. Yeah. Because that's another very concerning thing. Yeah. Yeah.
3: We always, we kind of, not really plans, but we talk about it like, okay, if something happens, we'll call 911, but we'll just drive from here. Because by the time somebody gets out here, it's an extra, you know, half hour out and then half hour back into a hospital.
1: Yeah. Sometimes actually in the, even in the city, that's, uh, you probably have to just drive yourself because no one picks up. But that's, anyway.
3: <laughs> but other than that I really love living out here like we've talked about it before like I don't know if I can be contained in a city I'm not certified anymore you know like I'm bouncing off the wall <laughs> which I already do <laughs> but I- we do oh sorry and it's really pretty Mm -hmm.
4: it's It's gorgeous and the stars you see out here and yeah you can
1: see the milky way whenever we look whenever you look up
4: yeah very cool yeah i hadn't even thought about the star factor and i don't know why because i do love looking at stars i've got a killer view yeah like
3: and we're like like, hooting and hollering type of people so yeah i don't think our neighbors would appreciate us if we lived closer (laughs)
4: like a perfect view of the milky way yeah really pretty
3: like just like a line like going to across the sky Mm -hmm.
1: yeah that's really a lot of people don't know what they're missing and then are completely amazed by uh, uh, I bet saddened by the fact that they do not get
3: yeah we definitely have city people that come out and they're like you know especially Mm. when they see the shooting stars
4: Mm.
3: but yeah the commute is the biggest annoyance I guess about living out here because anywhere you go you're at least a half hour on top of whatever you know but we just tried to to take as few trips as possible like oh, she's got a soccer game tonight? Okay, I guess we're doing grocery shopping on that. Right, making an efficient
4: loop out of everything, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, we live in a modern world, so you can order just about anything online. We have satellite internet. There's... Postal service delivers. I mean, there's not a whole lot that we can do out here that you can do in the city. And there's no lines. You don't wait in any lines. You go to the store. There's nobody in line. We were at getting uh, subs at Planet subs the other day. And she turned around. There was somebody else in there. And she got shocked. She, she jumped <laughs> because there was one other customer in there. And I'm like, honey, there's other people that, that can come here, too. We're, we're not always just alone. <laughs> and so the thought of going to the grocery store and having to wait behind a few people in line, I don't think I could do it anymore.
3: Yeah. And our rush hour consists of like five other cars, maybe. We're like, who is busy out here today? We've seen like five cars out on the road, you know? <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah. And maybe a
3: whole flock of turkeys or yeah, something. Exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, we did we did see a nice flock.
3: I do miss being because we lived, like you said, in the ghetto in Eureka, California, and we would walk everywhere. You know, we'd walk to the grocery store and walk down to the bars or walk to, you know, wherever, anywhere. And walk to the local murder scene right. <laughs> yeah. not saying we didn't bring our baby to the murder scenes the next day <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> oh, were yeah. just a baby you didn't mind
1: a few trade-offs <laughs> right is there um anything that we I guess we didn't we didn't ask that you want to yeah, or bring up
4: any parts of the story you want to color in.
0: I'll think of many later.
4: Yeah, right. <laughs> it's one of those things. Two days later, I'll be
3: like, "Oh, I should have done this."
0: Yeah, and I think we've settled into this lifestyle. I mean, it's a lifestyle and a business and a family, all kind of wrapped up in one. I think we finally hit our stride to where we can enjoy our lifestyle and work really hard without working too hard so that we hurt ourselves and. And we get to enjoy it. And we just want to do this pretty much the rest of our lives now is at this pace. You know, we don't like being too stressed out, but we like a little stress, but we like the ability to to stop and take a step back and and say, no, no, thank you. I'm not going out when it's hundred degrees today or I'm sleeping in and, and maybe I'll play some Zelda when it's 30 degrees out in the morning. That's life. And that's, that's, that what's, what's this all about is, is being happy and being comfortable and living a good life. And, Having fun. Well thanks. Thanks to both of you
1: for uh for having us out. Really appreciate you sharing, you know, your experience and the tour and, and yeah. uh really looking forward to, you know, continuing everything and
4: our relationship, yeah. you know. Right. You've been making our hummus better for yeah, at least two say, years. I, I just have to say, yeah. like like it truly is a pleasure to get to see where the dang good stuff comes from. And um yeah. And just kind of learn a little bit more about how your life works out here. And just see the beauty. It's like the forest, the trees, the yeah. leaves, beautiful grounds. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you guys for coming. And it's a symbiotic relationship. We love your hummus yeah. so much. Our veggies pair well with your hummus. Happy to grow. in. A lot of people say that they're going to make the trek out here, and most of the time they don't. For whatever reason, it's so far, it's a daunting trip. It That's is. part of the reason why we like it
2: out here. And thanks again for coming all the way.
4: Yeah, Absolutely. of course. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.
2: Thanks again to Scott and Sarah of Dangood Produce Farm. You can find their vegetables and maple syrup at Tower Grove and Boulevard Farmer's Market. Also, visit their social media at Dangood Produce. This is Tangled Taproot, a production of Milk and Hummus. I'm Angel. I'm Kristen. I'm John Cowan. Send us your thoughts to tangled taproot at com. We plan to answer questions and share feedback. Until next time. Ciao.
0: going to be frozen in the morning what
1: what, what are these uh, purple beans called just uh, table table beans, royal,
0: beans? <laughs> royal burgundy do they
1: do, yeah. they do you do you eat the inner side or yeah all it's the, the things thing. it's a
0: green oh. bean
1: oh wow okay it's got good
0: flavor but it's like weird texture at this point oh yeah 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 you've been hanging on the vine for mm-hmm. a couple weeks going through hell the beans don't like the chilly weather but it tasted good you can see the frost. We got t- a little frost yeah, a couple funny. weeks ago. That's what. Th- there were a bunch of leaves up top. It just barely nipped the tops, but it didn't get all the stuff underneath. The beans hanging there were protected.
1: And then the frost is like this uh, tan discoloration on the leaf.
0: Yes, all the way to missing completely leaves at all. And yeah. you'll come out and you'll look like a deer or something ate all the leaves off the top. The leaves will be gone, and you're like blaming it on a deer. But then you look down, and there's all the dead leaves okay. from the frost yeah. that they yeah. turned, yeah. and they they these must have just half survived i mean just almost didn't quite get killed hey.